The content of this program is sponsored by Make It Work Nevada. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. In the first three episodes of this podcast, we have explored the issues that cause women to struggle with having children, not having children, and raising them in a safe environment. For this episode, we're going to hear directly from three women about their birth stories. One of them is me. The other two are Amy Koopman and Brenda Zamora. This is told as one continuous story. You may want to grab your Kleenex. Black women and Black pregnant people's bodies have historically and continue to be under surveillance and monitored and controlled. I wrote a report called Women's Watch that predicted that there would be overlap between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement. Demanding an anti-racist healthcare system. What we are looking at is reducing the need for C-sections, which reduces the cost to the citizens of this state. When I woke up, I woke up to like the worst pain ever. I want to say I was like seven centimeters. At that point, I was I was afraid of having to go back home with as as a single father. I trust women, and I think that women have an inalienable right to liberty and to decide what happens to their own bodies. This is American Dreams, reproductive justice. Well, my name is Amy Kortz Koopman. Brenda Zamora. Erica Washington. We lived in Nashville at the time, Nashville, Tennessee, and I was under the care of the nurse midwives at Vanderbilt University. I didn't have a, an OBGYN that I saw regularly. I had my regular doctor and then I had the nurse midwives group. And so I went to like monthly or twice monthly prenatal classes. My due date was April 28th. And that's where we would have like the fundalite checks and all of that stuff. I was super healthy. He was measuring small and they were, so they were watching him constantly. I first thought it was going to be a normal pregnancy. I worked all the way through seven months. And then the day I quit the next day, I gave birth. <laughs> she was a 30 weeker. My second child, um, my my daughter Skylar was born in 2003 and she was born during the eastern seaboard blackout which is funny that living on this side of the country a lot of folks you know don't recall or or have no knowledge of ever happening but uh the power outage went from I think Ohio Michigan New York parts of Canada I think even Pennsylvania like none of us had power for a few days, actually, I think up to four days. Probably around week 26 or 27, I started having Braxton Hicks contractions. And by week 32, which I only remember this because it was our anniversary, it was our sixth anniversary. And I was having long, hard contractions. Like they weren't painful, but like my stomach would just get really rock hard and it would last for like two to three minutes. That's not supposed to happen. So 
I called the nurse midwives and they were like, okay, track it, time it. Um, if you have more than five of these in an hour, come in and see us. So I actually went in to the hospital and they, I was actually admitted. Um, and they decided I was dehydrated and they still didn't like the contractions. So they gave me a magnesium shot, which was terrible. <laughs> it's like ice running through your veins and it doesn't stop because it's magnesium in your IV. They gave me that because they were like, okay, if he's going to be born early, you're at the point where his lungs are the last things to fully develop. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that those are ready if you give birth early. So they did that and they released me a few hours later and they put me on modified bed rest. And that was really hard because I'm a runner and I had been running throughout my entire pregnancy and they told me not to. So I stopped for a couple weeks. <laughs> the contractions continued. Nothing stopped about that. Nothing slowed down. It ended up being because of my diabetes being very out of control. I was working at the North Premium Outlets, two stores, two jobs. You know, they were part time, so there was no benefits. So I never really went to a doctor. I was only going to the high risk pregnancy center. But they just do the basic checking on the baby and making sure the baby was okay. No one ever flagged that she actually had a cranial problem during the ultrasounds. So that was a surprise when I gave birth and they gave me a list of about 10 things that was wrong with, with my daughter at that time. She had cranial stenosis, so her skull was fused together. So that meant that it wasn't going to grow as she was growing. She had a soft palate. So it's usually the opening in her mouth, but it was further back towards the back of her mouth. And she had an extra finger. She had an extra digit. And she had her esophagus wouldn't close. So then they were having that issue where she couldn't eat. And it was just premature. She had a heart murmur for sure. It healed, but... She had to be in the NICU for six weeks. I got a social worker because she was in the ICU and I had no job and they signed me up. The state really kind of helped and was able to cover all that. She, so she had state Medicaid at that time. And so I was toward the end of my pregnancy and I had just had um, a little mini baby shower. They called it a, a sprinkle since you'd already had a kid. So you don't get a shower, you get a sprinkle. But there was a lot of food left over in my refrigerator and the power went out. And so I found myself overindulging in all of this, this food and what have you. And then I realized that I am going into labor and I'm sort of waiting it out because it's not my first kid. And I don't overreact. And so I realized, okay, I probably should go to the hospital sometime too, soon. So her father um, and I and my oldest child all drive to the hospital. I drop off the oldest at a friend's house. We head to the hospital. And we get there and I say, I am in labor. And I tell them that my doctor, who my doctor is and that, you know, all of the things. And they said, well, he's not on call. Um, and I said, well, he said, make sure you call him when I go into labor. They did not do that. So week 36 comes around and 36 is like technically full term. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, sweet, I can start running again. And 
And they said it was fine. I was running. I was healthy, heart strong, everything. I was not going into labor. I lost my mucus plug like three times. And then it just grew right back. It was wild. And then week 41 comes around and my nurse midwives are like, we don't feel comfortable with this because now he's measuring big. So we don't want you to go beyond 41 weeks. And I I was working with a doula at the time. I had full intention to labor naturally, to deliver vaginally, no, um, no epidural, no nothing like that. And so I was really insistent that I not be induced. And they were like, okay, okay, we're cool with that up until week 42. My husband and I decided that we would wait until 10 days after my due date. So 41 weeks, three days. That was a Friday. And that's when we decided to induce. And in conversations with the nurse midwife who had been leading my classes and doing all of my prenatal care, I think I found out at week 37 or 38, she was talking about all of the options. If it comes to induction, she's like, we're going to, I'm going to put it in your notes that Pitocin, if it has to be started, that it will be a low, a super low dose and only as long as is needed for contractions to become consistent. All of this was put into my notes, I was told, so that on the day that I got there, she said, I've been your nurse midwife throughout your prenatal care, but I will not be on call this weekend. And the on-call midwife will be the one handling your care. And I was like, wait, what? And at that point, I mean, I was an 18-year-old kid. I didn't know how serious diabetes is. I didn't really kind of even do my own research at that point. So I was just kind of like, okay, I have diabetes. And then, oh, I'm pregnant. i got to keep working. And I never fully paid attention and fully did my research about it. Um, so it was, I, you know what? Honestly, I think I was working over two jobs at that point, as I remember some photos that I have, but um, never, never thought I had the time to go to the doctor. But that was probably one of the worst mistakes I could have done, because I think I could have made it full term if I was going to a doctor and doing checkups and really paying attention to what was happening, because they say that I had her prematurely because of my diabetes. Why are you blaming yourself? Because I feel like I could have done better, but I didn't know better. It's still, I feel like in a way, it's still my fault. And so as I laid there, you know, in labor, the doctor, I want to say was a resident. I don't know. um, She kept saying to me, I don't think you're in labor. I said, well, I feel as though I'm in labor. I'm having contractions. And she says to me, if you were in labor, you would be screaming and feeling like your body was bursting open. And I said, ew, because... And that's weird. Like, why would you describe it that way to somebody? And, you know, they checked me and I hadn't really dilated much or what have you. But I said, you know, I move really slow in labor until, you know, I hit a certain point and then things move very, very fast. I said, this is how it happened before. This is what I think will happen again. She's like, I don't think you're in labor. I think you just might be a little, um, you know, upset or, or maybe nervous with the blackout or what have you. So she gave me an Ambien. 
I had never taken an Ambien before. She put it in a little paper cup that they give you. And I sat there for the longest time and and didn't take it because I'm like, but I know I'm in labor. I am in labor. But it's one of those things that, you know, the doctor who has all of this medical knowledge, you know, you start to doubt yourself. You start, well, maybe I'm not in labor. Maybe this is not what it is. You start thinking all of these different things. And so I said, okay, well, I guess we should leave. So we went back and picked up um, my oldest who would have been four at the time. Uh, no, she would have still been three at the time. She was three. And and we went back um, to their dad's house and we were living separately. And so we went back to his place and in the car on the way to his place, I am still holding the cup with Amy and I had not taken it yet because I'm still like, I think I'm in labor. Like, I just don't know. And then finally, I'm like, well, maybe I should just take this. So I took it in the car and it kicks in and I fall asleep. This midwife works at the clinic that she works at not at the hospital. She works at one of the offsite Vanderbilt women's clinics. But she didn't tell anybody that. We get to the morning of and I'm checked in. They are full. I guess everybody decided to have their babies and they are short a couple nurses. So there are like two or three nurses to handle all of these laboring mothers. And then the nurse midwife who's on call. She checks my cervix to see how far dilation effacement are happening. And she said, you know, you're what, two and a half, three centimeters dilated, but effacement is looking pretty good. Um, But I was going, I'm only, I'm only two centimeters dilated at 40 weeks, 10 days. So that's like bonkers to me already. In any case, she checks my cervix. And when that happens, I have something happen with my cervix and my uterus that is not a contraction, but it feels like the worst pain, like a knife ripping through me. But that had happened once before because I was in a, I was also in a clinical trial. And so every month I had my cervix checked by these Vanderbilt students who were doing this research. And one of the times that they did that, and it it was awful. And the nurse midwife kind of was like, well, things happen and dismissed it. And I was like, okay, I guess it's nothing. And the heart monitor was hooked up to my belly so that they could track his heart rate. And I was hooked up to one, but I was, I did not have the IV in for Pitocin yet. And when she did that to check my cervix, something happened that they lost the heartbeat then for like five minutes and they were moving me all over the bed. A couple doctors come in and they're resituating me. They're putting on, putting my legs up. They're putting me on my hands and knees. And ultimately I'm, facing the wall on the bed on my hands and knees I have this you know the gown on with that just has the open back and no underwear and they recover his heartbeat they find it on the monitor and I turn around and there are like 20 people in the room watching my backside 
they had in that moment been talking about taking me back for an emergency C-section right now. Scarlett went home after having two surgeries. Um, she was four months old when she had her first cranial surgery. So they kind of just opened and cut where the fused part was. And they thought that was going to help and fix the issue. And unfortunately, it didn't. Um, so at seven months, no, at nine months, at nine months old, she had her soft palate repair. So they fixed her soft palate. But because of the cranial stenosis, it actually ended up closing her airway. So I think at, at nine months was probably the hardest time that I had with Scarlett. Um, and at this point, I was, you know, living by myself, you know, barely making rent. I was on WIC. I was on SSI. I was on um, SNAP, like food, you know, food stamps, everything, because that's all I had. That's all I, I mean, I was eating a couple noodles, I think, every day at that point, because that's all we could afford. And at nine months, she had her soft palate. She went into the ICU because she had coded in the surgery room. And then she had coded again after surgery. When they told me that I could finally see her in the ICU, I went up. I was with her and she finally had opened her eyes and she gave me this look. She's, if you know Scarlett, she's very positive and she's always been very positive. But that one time she gave me that look of, I am tired. It was a very sad look and she looked at me. And she squeezed, squeezed my finger and she closed her eyes and she started coding. The way that my ex-husband uh, describes it is that I had some sort of Tourette's. Like I would fall asleep and then wake up every five or six minutes and scream out expletives. And then like just slump back over and it would just happen over and over and over again. He was and he was like, I don't know what was happening to you. Like it was almost like an exorcist. You wake up ah, and then go back to sleep. But they did recover his heartbeat. And so we were like, okay, cool. That didn't happen. And so they hooked me up to Pitocin and we go on our way. I didn't feel anything until like three o'clock. My water broke, 3.30, something like that. And that's when labor really started. And by 4.30, I was having contractions it felt like constantly. And by the time my doula got there, it was 5.05. She's like, just breathe through it. I know it feels like your contractions are constant, but they're not. And you can see on the monitor, like a the contraction will spike and then you can watch it come back down and kind of settle at a point and you can just breathe through that low point, right? Until it, until you see it spiking again. And she was like, watch the monitor. It's coming down, breathe with the coming down. And I was like, it's starting again. And she looked at me like you're crazy. And then looked at the monitor and was like, oh my God, you're right. It is. So the nurse midwife came in and I was like, can we turn the Pitocin down now? Because you jacked it up really high. And I was like, can we at least like cut it in half just to see what happens? And she was like, um, no, if you cut it in half or if you drop it down, then contractions will probably stall. And then we have to start the whole process over again. And 
my husband and I are going, can we at least try? Like it's right in my notes. My, my nurse midwife that I had been working with this whole time had said that that would be fine. She instructed you to do this. You know, I have this history of big, long contractions. And she's like, no, I think we'll keep it at 14. So there was like this whole just bad vibes between me and the nurse and the midwife. And they were not paying any attention to anything I was saying, or if they were, they were just dismissing me because they know better. So by the time my doula got there, she's watching these contractions. And finally, she's like, we need to call a doctor because this is not normal. And they're at shift change at this point. So a new nurse comes in and she's looking at my contraction chart and she's like what the hell is happening here and she immediately shuts the pitocin off and my doula is looking at her going i think it's too late they were kind of just trying to figure it out because they didn't want to just intubate her because of the freshly new you know repair in her mouth they didn't want to ruin that so they ended up just taking a chance and intubating her and they put her in in an induced coma so she was in a coma for two weeks as we try to figure out what the next steps were because they gave me three options. It was just kind of like we reopen the surgery we just did or we make her tongue smaller or we give her a trach. And they, she had about seven specialists and that would come and visit her when she was in the ICU that have been her doctors since birth. So every specialist that would come, I would ask them for their opinion. And I did my research of what would be the best steps. And a lot of them said the trach was the best, which is just a breathing tube in their neck. Um, that way we can go home. And that's the decision we went with. So we traked her at nine months, nine months old. And she already had a G-tube from birth so that's the feeding tube in, in her stomach so she was already g-tube so that's why i said trach would be easier because she's already eating through you know a tube so we went we went that route and then three months later after that we did her second cranial surgery and they had to put some distractors in her head so every day i had to kind of twist the screws morning and afternoon so it slowly was stretching her skull out to you know build that tissue so because her her skull was growing like a cone shape so we went through that all yeah that year was 20 2014 2014 yeah there's things now that as I talk about I get very emotional because at that point, I had to suppress a lot of my feelings. Like, I was just trying to figure things out, how I can be, you know, there for her. And I never was able to to express whatever I was feeling. So now, there's a lot of the times that I talk about it, and I still don't know, right? Like, it's just so much suppressed stuff, because I was just getting by and getting through. We get to his place and I lay on the couch. He lays on the floor under me. And at some point I wake up and I remember bumping up and down the hallway towards his bathroom. Because I think I have to go to the bathroom. And I remember hitting this wall and that wall and this wall. And I make it to the bathroom and I sit down on the toilet. And I start pushing. 
And at some point in my brain, it clicks like something is not right. Like I'm not doing the right thing, but I could not put the pieces together in my brain. My brain was not working correctly. I was, I've never been drowsy in that way before. And so I just, and I just jumped up. And I remember going back down the hallway and I remember hitting him on his back. I'm hitting him. I'm like, wake up, wake up, wake up. We got to get up. We got to get up. We got to go to the hospital. We got to go now. We have to get out of here. I have to go now. I'm like, this baby is coming. And he's like, oh, and he's trying to grab, you know, our other daughter. I am out the door. I am out the door into the car. I'm just gone. And so we get to the hospital that's closest to him. This is a different hospital. They don't have any power. And they're on, they're running on a generator. So when we pull up, like the automatic doors to the emergency room don't open automatically. I remember, and we're kind of banging on the door, what have you. And they come towards, and I'm like, I'm in labor, I'm in labor. And so they bring me in, they check me, and he's like, Yes, you're in labor. And I'm just so delirious. And 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 they're like, Well, we can deliver you here, but I think you have enough time to get to this other hospital that actually has power. They have they have power now over there. So we're so they're escorting me by ambulance at this point. And so I'm in the ambulance and I remember very little except for apologizing over and over and over again to the paramedic saying, I'm so sorry, I have not brushed my teeth yet. I am, I am out here and I've not brushed my teeth. I'm so sorry. You know, she's like, it's fine. I'm like, it's not fine. This is, you don't come outside. I'm like, I am saying all kind of things. And so we make it to that hospital and he is separate because he went to go drop off our three-year-old at someone else's house so that he could get back to the hospital. So at this point, it's like 4.45, five o'clock and they are having a hard time finding his heartbeat again. It's like in and out and in and out. I'm just in constant contractions. And by 5.17, they've lost his heartbeat for five minutes. And they say, okay, it's time for a C-section. And they had me under anesthesia and him born at 5:24 with my second pregnancy I was like okay I'm going to go to the doctor and make sure everything's good and I went to my OB and I will never forget this because I felt guilty because she said you messed up by being pregnant again and you are risking your life so the more kids you have the more life you take like more time you're taking away from your life and I never went back because she she was basically kind of just yelling at me for being pregnant and I Never went back to the OB because of that. That kind of sat with me. The My OB kind of just being like, you should have not done this. And I didn't even go to high risk. I was just kind of, it was also during a time that, that my oldest was going through a lot of surgical things. Like most of, I think my pregnancy was in the ICU with my oldest. Um, so my second pregnancy was kind of non-existent. I think... No one, no one knew I was pregnant until I actually gave birth. Um, and it was still premature, but she was thankfully smaller. She didn't have a lot of the issues. It was just she wouldn't eat. She wouldn't eat. So she was in the ICU for six weeks, too. But hers, it was a little bit smoother. It was just a heart murmur, a small brain aneurysm, which they say it's all kind of normal stuff for premature babies. But... I tried to put it in the back of my mind that I was pregnant because I needed to focus on Scarlett. And it was also a time that I was surrounded by very old school mentalities of like, you can't abort. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. 
my partner at the time was pushing for me to have an abortion because of the situation we were in with our first child. And I just couldn't go through with it, which led to the separation, which led to me being a single mom with two kids. So it was something I try to ignore as much as I can. I was in a really bad, you know, I think it was a mix of postpartum depression, a mix of just depression of everything we had been through with my oldest at that time. I slept most of my pregnancy, my second pregnancy. I would just get up. I would barely eat. It, I was very skinny. I, it was very unhealthy. How old were you with the second pregnancy? 19. And her name? Natalie. That is part one of Birth Stories. Join us next week on KUNV 91.5 for part two. Or listen to the entire podcast on your favorite podcast app. Look for American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. Thank you for listening to American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. Created, hosted, and executive produced by Erica Washington. That's me. Also executive produced by Carrie Kaufman with Overthinking Media, LLC. Music by Will Black for Black Gypsy Music with incidental music by The Flowbots. Artwork by Brent Holmes. This podcast is empowered by the donations to Make It Work Nevada.